So we're, I'm, I'm going to lead off the whole shebang? The whole shebang. Okay. You ever hear that song, She Bangs, by uh, Ricky Martin? Yeah, of course. I heard it when, um, what's his, William Hung? Was that it on American Idol? That's right. That was his song. Yeah, yeah. He was like the original John Duran boss. Yeah, he... Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not governed by the fear of what other people say. You've got to open your heart. Well, number one, he's one of the elite offensive players in the game. What is leadership like in today's football world? Hello, everyone. We are back. I'm home from uh, Amherst and Detroit. Murph is back Detroit, in the office. what? Uh, Eminem. Detroit Eminem, Detroit Motown, Detroit Bob Seger. Did you hang out with D12 while you were there? I did not. I did not do hang out. Do you know out. what D12 is? I, I know who Cheddar Bob is. I didn't hang out with him either. Do you know who D12 is? No. It's uh, Eminem's posse. There's 12 of them, and they're from Detroit, so they call him D12. That's creative. I don't know if, if Eminem is included among the 12. I assume he is. Otherwise, it would be D13. D13? That'd be bad luck. Or D Baker's Dozen. Um, I I don't I wouldn't bet Eminem knows what a baker's dozen is. Do you think Eminem has ever tried to bring a loaded firearm through airport security? I don't want to besmirch the man's reputation and character, so I'm going to say I don't know. And that raises another question: How does Carson Wentz get his right arm through security? You know, because it just it would set off metal detectors. It's made of gold. Does gold sets off metal detectors, right? Well, I was thinking more along the lines of it being a loaded weapon. Ah, gotcha, gotcha. Um, in case you're asleep and don't know who we are, I'm Mike Sealski from the Philadelphia Inquirer. In case you weren't one of the five people who tuned in on Facebook Live yeah. during our uh, inaugural five. podcast. It might, be, it might be four. Um, and he's Dave Murphy from the Philadelphia Daily News. Uh, and this is not another Philly sports talk show. We are, this is Wednesday morning. We are three days removed from the Eagles' loss in Detroit. We are less than 24 hours removed from a basketball game that may or may not have taken place between the Sixers and the Grizzlies in Memphis. It was not televised anywhere. So for all we know, um, they, you know, staged another moon landing. Uh, and yeah, we, we really, you know, other than Keith Pompey's dispatch from Memphis, we have no hardcore evidence or proof that the game actually happened. Well, let's set that up first. Okay. Um, for all you Sixers fans, we will be, we have already spoken with Keith Pompey uh, from Washington, D.C. as Mike, Sielski said the Sixers were blown out by the Grizzlies last night, but it was a preseason game and there was apparently a lot to be excited about with regards to Joel Embiid. Unfortunately, uh, it was one of the few, you know, I can, I can get a television broadcast of Mike Sielski eating a porterhouse steak if, if he would like to broadcast that, but I can't get a freaking preseason NBA game. I, I was scrolling through all the channels last night trying to find this thing and it wasn't on and Joel Embiid scored 13 points in 13 minutes. You know what's funny about this is... And no one will ever know. Yeah. I mean, just as an indication of how much our A, society, B, viewing habits, and C, expectations for those viewing habits have changed over time, it is not that long ago that Eagles games would be blacked out, that you could not see them anywhere. Uh, and now, A, the idea of that happening is just... It doesn't enter people's minds at all. And... B, now the expectation that like we should be able to find an NBA preseason game uh, anywhere on our dial. Uh, it just, you know, it shows 
how different things are since when I was a boy. But I, I mean, I can watch a cat playing with a yeah. Christmas ribbon. I should be there able, is I that. should be able to watch Joel and B play basketball. Yeah, the, the CCR network, Cat Christmas Ribbon Network, is actually, it's number, I think, 12, 18 on the Comcast grid. Um, so I believe that's go. actually called uh, PBS. Is it? Oh, okay. In between Bill Moyer's specials. So anyway, yeah, we're going to have Keith later on um, to talk about what he saw, to talk about a really interesting story he wrote uh, in on Philly.com in today's inquiry about Nick Stauskas and the value of seeing a sports psychologist and whatever it might say about Nick Stauskas. Um, Maybe the sports psychologist knows how to shoot. <laughs> Maybe he knows how to play point guard, which the Sixers apparently were going to try with Stauskas before he uh, strained He's, his uh, uh, hamstring. Stauskas is more athletic than he gets credit for. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think... He just can't... He, I just don't know that he can shoot in the NBA. His release is too slow. Yeah, release is too slow. I think he, does, he lacks... Uh, and Keith will get into this. He lacks confidence. Um, he doesn't have that kind of um, the dog in him that that other players seem to have. Um, he just doesn't seem to have it. So we'll get into that with Keith. But we want to start with the man, the myth, the interception thrower at the end of games, Carson Wentz. Um, to me, Murph, the the interesting thing about what happened vis-a-vis Wentz in that loss to the Lions is. That interception, in particular, the value of it moving forward. This has been kind of a big discussion topic over the three days since, and and I think it's an interesting one, which is I think everybody would agree in that moment any quarterback should not make that throw. I disagree. You disagree? Okay. I think think it was a ball that should have been – either caught or knocked to the ground. There's there's no reason for Nelson Aguilar to allow that pass to get intercepted. See, it's a right read. It's single high. It's nobody's over the top. He's got one-on-one coverage. Aguilar has position. It was I mean, the throw itself execution-wise was a little off, but you need to have an outside receiver who's capable of going up and making a play on that ball. And I'm just not sure that Nelson Aguilar has the strength or the body control to be able to do that. And maybe now Carson Wentz knows, but I don't fault Carson Wentz for taking that shot. Okay, I grant you all that, except if you're Carson Wentz, you know, you, you've got to know, number one, in that situation, a minute 28 to go, you only need a field goal to take the lead and presumably win the game. Your kicker, Caleb Sturgis, has already boomed a 49-yarder and a 50-yarder. The 50-yarder he hit twice because Detroit called a timeout in the midst of him making it the first time, and then he came back and hit it a second time. Um, You only need to get about 40 yards to get yourself into his range. You don't need to go for everything on the first play. And while he may have seen single high safety, he may have seen one-on-one coverage, A... Jordan Matthews is open underneath on that play, wide open, um, which would have led to a substantial gain, and and you get the drive off to a good start. And a, and a quarterback, rookie or not, has to see that. Uh, and number two, you know, it, unless Aguilar is 10 yards behind the defense, in that situation, I don't want him making that throw. Now, having said that, in a way, I like the mentality that he would do that. In a, in a weird way, I want him to be daring enough to take certain shots down the field. Um, but I think in that situation, discretion is the better part of valor. And so you just say, look, 
I'm not going to take that shot because it's Nelson Aguilar. Um, you know, because we don't need it at this moment. Because he's not 10 yards behind the defense. He's not wide open. Um, and the possibility for a bad thing happening outweighs the possibility of a good thing happening. That's me. It makes sense. I just can't fault him. No, I mean, like I said, I like that he's willing to do that. Um, you know, it was kind of controlled recklessness, I guess. You know, it, it wasn't like he was Brett Favre in the in the playoffs against the Eagles back in 2003, just chucking it up to nobody and practically, you know, short punting the ball to Brian Dawkins and handing the Eagles a victory. I'm not saying that, but by the same token, in that situation, you don't need to make that play. And like I said early, I'm curious as to whether this is going to be something that Wentz says, okay, I have to be more choosy about when I take shots down the field, or is it just, hey, I do that 100 times out of 100, and I'm going to trust my guy to make the play, um, in which case, you know, you may see some mistakes of the kind that Favre made as great as he was throughout the course of his career, which was throwing the ball to the other team a lot, often in situations where it was really, really damaging to his team. So is this defense as good as we thought it was through three weeks, or did the Lions pick up on something? You know, they ran a lot. They, they attacked that the edge a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, early in the Particularly in the did. first half, and they had a lot of success doing it. It was weird because it, it was very much a tale of two halves, and in the second half, I thought the front four brought a ton of pressure on Matthew Stafford. But, uh, you know, the run defense was something that was a problem last year, and other than Chicago not really attempting to run the ball all that much, I don't know how great the Eagles have been this year. And in, in, in Pittsburgh, I think... Pittsburgh ten, ran the ball 10 times ten the times. whole game. But, uh, you know, I think... The Browns rushed for like 130 yards. Now, again, that was this. A lot of that was on, you know, after the game was already right said and done. I think a lot of that came in the fourth quarter. But you don't expect to see Theo Riddick and uh, Jeremy Renner or whatever his name is, uh, <laughs> Hawkeye. Yeah, you don't expect to. You don't expect to see them gashing you. And I think we saw that for much of the. I mean, they were only the Eagles had the ball twice in the second quarter. It was really weird. The the two teams finished with nine possessions in the entire game and a lot of that was because the Lions just kept on attacking that edge with those those pulling guards and and it seemed to work well what, I, I think a yeah. what what's your level of concern about the first half and b what changed all right so my level of concern about the first half I think will be answered this Sunday against the Redskins in which I I would guess we haven't heard from him yet that Jim Schwartz is going to realize the error of his ways by giving too many snaps to Michael Kendricks and Stephen Tulloch in the first half of that game against the Lions and go back to what was working before, which was playing Jordan Hicks and Nigel Bradham. Because I, I think that explains at least part of what happened in the first half, which is, you know, Kendricks, as he is wont to do, uh, missed a bunch of tackles, had Riddick, you know, could have had Riddick wrapped up for a two-yard gain instead he misses him, and Riddick turns into an 11, 12, 13-yard game and drives keep going, and it leads to touchdowns. And, you know, I, I don't know why. Nobody seems to know why other than the logical answer of Nigel Bradham got arrested for having a gun as he went through airport security. Yeah, he was on the field during the first drive. Yeah, but he wasn't on the field very much. I, I mean, I, I don't know why you wouldn't have kept him out there. Um you know, this is the NFL. Like, you only have 16 of these games. You're going to see if Michael Kendricks can handle it or you want to give him a, a shot. I, I, I don't, there doesn't seem to be a logical reason why 
you would have Kendricks out there and not Bradham unless you were punishing Bradham in some way. I, I don't know. Uh, so to answer your question, I want to see what happens in the first half against the Redskins to, to answer that question of, is this something to be concerned about or is it something that, hey, with the right personnel, it's going to be fixed? If they were punishing Bradham, they've completely ruined any effect of it. I, I just don't yeah. understand why you would punish a guy by not telling anybody that you're punishing him and sitting him out a few snaps. You know, I I don't know. I, I, it was mystifying because it was obvious that Bradham was not out there as much as he had been. It was obvious that Kendricks was out there more often. It was obvious that Tulloch was out there more often and obvious that Hicks wasn't out there as much. And you saw what happened. I mean, it wasn't like they were making, you know, chunk plays down the field, um, uh, you know, against the cornerbacks. They were throwing the ball underneath to Riddick and, and to running backs and to tight ends. And that's, you know, that's where your linebackers have to make plays. And that's where Michael Kendricks is at his weakest, is in coverage and tackling in the open field and doing smart things on a football field. So pretty much he's at, he's at his weakest playing linebacker. Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair to say. Okay. You know, it's kind of like I'm at my, as a sports writer, I'm at my weakest when I actually write. That's kind of how I feel about it. That's how I feel about it, too. Yeah, the readers. With, yeah. Regards, Indica- to you, with regards to you. Yeah, and Indica- <laughs> the emails I get and the, and the Twitter posts I get are, you know, support my argument. I love you, Mike Sealski. Oh. I don't know if that makes you feel any better, but... <sighs> Not really. I don't use that term lightly, either. Not especially. Yeah, I'm going to have to go back and watch it again, because I'm not sure. I, it's just hard for me to believe that an NFL defense coordinator would knowingly make his team worse just because like to me there's got to be yeah, a rational, I, there's got to be a rational explanation I would for think it. He, we just haven't heard it yet you know maybe it's maybe it's just that we haven't heard it yet and he'll he'll have his press conference on Thursday morning and demystify everybody but at this point everybody who covers that team is scratching their heads wondering what the heck happened in that first half why didn't you play your best linebacker um yeah I'm, I'm with you so. the um well let's let's Get into Keith. Speaking of mysteries, we can go to that Sixers game yeah. Tuesday night in Memphis that may or so may Joel not have happened. So Joel Embiid has quietly had a very efficient, I guess you could say, preseason. He's only been playing 10 to 15 minutes a night. But, man, it's been an active 10 to 15 minutes. Last night, excuse me. Well, let's start with two two nights ago or two games ago. Mm-hmm. He played 13 minutes and 23 seconds. And managed to do all of this. Ten, ten attempts from the floor, two of them from three-point range, one of which he hit. Four free throws, four rebounds, free, four rebounds, a block, and two turnovers. And four personal fouls. <laughs> My man is working hard. That's called a good 50. That's, that's, called that's a, active, uh, yeah. That, that's getting your money's worth. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I, 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 I mean, I've watched the games, and I was there... Um, for the first preseason game in Amherst against the Celtics, he he doesn't it it doesn't look as busy as it sounds. If that makes sense, mm-hmm. like it doesn't look like he is um, actively trying to dominate the ball. Like, and maybe that's a function of him being seven two. Like, no matter what you thought of Allen Iverson, for instance, when he was on the floor, you were aware that he had the ball all the time. That he was taking this shot, passing the ball to this guy, making this play, whatever. Maybe, again, maybe it's just a function of Embiid being 7-2. But it doesn't feel that way. It doesn't feel like, oh, here's Embiid with the ball again. Like, you know, here he is calling for the ball again. It just it seems to kind of naturally 
spring out of the flow of the game for the short time that he's in there. So now the Grizzlies on Wednesday night, the Sixers got a little little butt whooping, 30 points. Yeah. It, again, as we noted earlier, it was not on television anywhere. There's no video proof that this game actually occurred. Uh, so we had to go to Keith Pompey straight to the source. But Embiid's line la- uh, Wednesday night, 13 minutes. 13 minutes. Three of seven from the floor. Zero for two from three-point range. Seven of eight from the foul line. And then five rebounds for them on the defense defensive side of the glass. One block. One turnover. And here we go again. Maybe we should have asked Keith about this. But th- three personal fouls in 15 minutes. Is this uh, is this just a guy who's got to learn how to play defense again? Yeah, I think that's. I mean, yeah, I think that's. Now it. keep in mind he was going against a couple couple good big men in in uh, Marcus Saul and Zach Randolph. Yeah, I mean, I, I think honestly that that to me is the foremost concern you have now. I mean, I, look besides the foot, besides the foot. But well, it, let's start with the foot. What is your concern? Like when you're up in Amherst, I know they're taking it easy with him this preseason, but once the regular season starts. Are they going to have any problem letting him play 25 minutes a game? I don't think they are. I really don't. I mean, he's given absolute, with the exception of him kind of tumbling to the floor against the Celtics and everybody kind of holding their breath and then he got up and everything was fine. He's he's given no indication that the foot is bothering him in any way. Um, you know, whatever rust there is, it's just, it seems to be a guy who hasn't played official competitive basketball in more than two years shaking that stuff off. I mean, he. I, I did see a vine of a play against the Grizzlies where Robert Covington misses a, a three-pointer and Embiid takes off from the foul line, grabs the rebound, and jams it, you know, without a problem. What I was going to say, the frustrating possibility here is that he stays healthy, and because of the rust, he's going to end up in foul trouble every single game. So they can't play him 20, 25 minutes they can only play him 10 or 15 because he's got two or three fouls within the first four or five minutes of him being on the floor. Um, and, and that would be a concern to me if I were Brett Brown and the Sixers is how much are we going to be able to see? Are we just going to have to leave him on the floor and let him pick up fouls and have him learn the hard way? Um, you know, because otherwise we're going to take him off the floor while he's healthy because we don't want to, we don't want him to foul out. He was a, I think Joel Embiid has a chance to be a, transcendent NBA I player if he if he can stay healthy and is there any idea of what the recurrence risk for this foot is I, I I don't I think the sample size is so small that it's hard to it's hard to know um you know Jordan had Michael Jordan had this injury and obviously it didn't hamper him very much and he didn't even have surgery now that was 30 years ago um you know, you talk about big men with foot injuries. Everybody mentions Bill Walton and Sam Bowie. Ilgaskis. Yeah, Ilgaskis obviously came back from it. What's interesting about Bowie to me is that Bowie was actually a far more productive player than he actually, than he gets credit for. Like, he played a few years after that, and while he wasn't a dominant big man, he was a serviceable one. Um, I, I, at this point, I don't know. You know, they insist they're following all the science. You know, Brett Brown has said that. I asked him about that last week and he said you know i come in and get the reports from our doctors and our researchers every no, you gotta morning. say you gotta say it like brett brown expressively <laughs> okay let me try um i get the reports from our doctors and you know every sounds, morning yeah <laughs> uh, that sounds a little bit too much like brooklyn um and not maine anyway anyway the point is I, I don't know what the rate is i'm not sure anybody could possibly know um you know and, and i don't know that you can live you know if you're the sixers if you can live life like that you, you just 
you play him as you can play him, and and if he's, I mean, and that's and that is the other concern is that he's. You can see the talent. You can see the potential. Yeah, I mean, it's so apparent. Let's forget the foot because and live in fantasy land for a minute. Because if this guy, this guy has such soft hands for a big man, and that he's been working on that fadeaway from like ten feet from the elbow. Yeah, it's undefendable. It is. It's just undefendable. And if he can, you know, he's just started with that too. Uh, you know, if he can make that. I mean, he's got a chance to be really, really he good. He does. The, the drawback that they're going to have, the problem that they're going to have now without Simmons is they're going to have trouble getting him the ball. They've already had that issue, I feel like. you know, yeah. I mean, they're going to have Jared Bayless come back eventually. Um, you know, you hope Sergio Rodriguez can can play a little bit. TJ McConnell can play a little bit. But that would be the concern is, you know... I think the bigger concern is having a guy, having two guys who can space the floor and shoot mm. if... And B kicks it out to that. Well, you hope Covington at least is one of those guys. Um, and the numbers say that last year, even though he didn't get all that many uncontested three pointers because they're the Sixers and they don't have, you know, you can contest everybody <laughs> because they were the Sixers. Um, you know, the numbers suggest that if he gets open looks, he's going to make them. So there's one guy. Is Nick Stassi going to be I the mean, other what, guy? Is there like an a contest, uncontested three? Like, I mean, Robert you know Covington's who, not a three point. Like, he's. I know well, he's the you best know, three-point shooter on the team. You know who tracked... Derek Bodner from Philly right, Mac has right. tracked this, and he will insist that... And I take him at his word that if you look at the numbers, when Covington is alone and open, he makes the shot. Okay. So, for whatever that's worth. I mean, for for his career, he's a 36% shooter from downtown. Yeah. Which is not... Which is not great. No. It's not great. But, I mean, to me, what you need more than... Any, and it all... I mean, it all flows together. You know, the entry pass and the, the mm-hmm. spacing and yada, yada, yada. But... You, more than anything, than a guy that to, to throw in the ball, you need guys who can hit down shots. Yeah. Once people start to collapse on them, but again, I guess we're kind of getting too far ahead yeah. of ourselves even there because we don't even know how how long this guy's going to play. But why don't we actually go to someone who can verify that there was a game? That would be good. And Keith Pompey. So let's go now to Keith Pompey from the Philadelphia right. Inquirer, uh, basketball beat writer, troubadour, uh, man about town, who is now in Washington D.C. Right, Keith. Yeah, yeah. Now, you you were there in Memphis last night, so we do know there was actually a basketball game played between the Sixers and the Grizzlies because the game wasn't on TV in the Philadelphia market. So, as the eyes for the entire Delaware Valley. It wasn't just not on TV in the Philadelphia market. It wasn't market. on TV anywhere. It wasn't on TV anywhere. I'm still yeah, not convinced that. We've got more proof of the lunar landing than we have of this <laughs> Grizzlies-Sixers game last night. I... You know what? I'm skeptical, so go ahead. All right, so... You missed a good one, though, I tell you that. <laughs> it's in the first half. I mean, it was a good first half. What What did... Uh, very exciting. What, what What did Embiid look like? Let's cut to the chase. Initially, he looked like he normally does in the beginning. I mean, you know, he comes out in his, his first four minutes. He's a little rusty. Like, I think, like, 20 seconds into the game, he had his, uh, a shot blocked, a turn, eight-foot turnaround jumper. Then he, like, front-rimmed a wide-open uh, three-corner, three-pointer. And then he had, like, an 11-foot turnaround jumper. Uh, you know, he missed that one as well. Then he goes to the bench. He comes back. And then all of a sudden, it's, like, beast mode. <laughs> you know what I mean? He's, like, he's, he's like you know, playing very well. I mean, he, he, had, he had a block. He, he scored at the, uh, at the, on the last play of the, of the first quarter. 
And then he went on and, like, he, he proceeded to score, like, three of his next four baskets. Um, it was funny, though, because, you know, he's, he's playing hard, and, 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 and Zach Randolph is, like, basically getting really physical with him, and he's fighting them back. And then next thing you know, like, somebody, like, they were off the ball, and, some, you know, there was a foul on the ball. So as they're on the foul line, Randolph, like, reached out and hugged them. And says like, "Hey man, you know you're, you're playing well." And then they just start laughing and joking. And the funny thing is, Randolph was too busy worrying about MB talking to him. So then MB grabs the rebound and gets an and one, you know. And then Randolph starts laughing again. I mean, you know, it was it was kind of like they had a lot of respect. It was like, "Welcome to the NBA. We love you. You're going to be a great player." And at the conclusion of the game, uh, Marcus Hole seeked him out and gave him a hug. So it was it was great. I mean, it was good, you know, in the first half. And it's a shame that the people in the Philadelphia area didn't really get to see the game because they would have been really impressed because he won up against against some horses. So, um, one of the things that has kind of been a pattern for Embiid so far in the preseason is that he doesn't play well, at least in that first few minutes that he's in a game. As you said, he takes a seat on the bench, and all of a sudden he's back, and he looks like a different player. He did that uh, in the first preseason game against the Celtics in Amherst. Uh, as you described it, he did it again last night. Is this simply a function of him you know, kicking off rust? Are there things that he's maybe trying to do early in a game um, that he's not trying to do later? I mean, I remember being up there in Amherst with you, and he was kind of settling for fadeaways and jump shots early on, and then... Um, you know, moved more to the basket later in the game. Um, it sounded like from what you're describing, he did the same thing Tuesday night in Memphis. Um, is it just rust, or is there something else going on here? I mean, I, I think that the guy is a little nervous, you know, and I, I think, like, because he even said it going into that game, he was a little scared of uh, of the player. I mean, you know, it, 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 more or less not scared of Mark because he knows Mark but he was scared of uh, Zach Randolph. So with that being said, it's one of those things where, you know what I mean, he, he, you know, he's young. He, he, he realized, like, you know what, I need to settle down, and, and I know that I can play with these guys. And once he does that, everything's good. Thank you. You know, and, and I think that's exactly what happened. I mean, he, he even said that about Birdman, Chris Anderson. He said, man, I was scared of him. And he's like, dude. 72, 276 pounds, but he was. And then, you know, he's like, he, you know, he, he's a rookie. You know what I mean? He's a rookie, and he's, he's really trying to learn the game, learn himself. And, you know, that's that's a part of it. I think he'll be fine. Joel Embiid, according to my box score, 13 points, three, three of seven from the floor, seven of eight from the line. Uh He's attempted a couple three-pointers, I think, in just about every game. Is this going to be part of his game? Well, it, it is. I mean, the thing about it, of course, you want him to be on the block. And, and I guess a good – the best statistic was that he attempted eight foul shots in the first half. So it's really like he wasn't, like, always stationary on, you know, at the three. He was posting up in the paint. But – to be honest with you, man, he's one of the top three three-point shooters on the team. So, with that, with that being said, I'm not, you know, 
I'm not mad at him for taking that shot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but do you think Brett Brown is? I mean, what Brett Brown said is he doesn't encourage it, but he doesn't discourage it either. You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. like one of those things. It's something that they work on, and and it's, it's part of his. You know, it's, it's part of his makeup. He, you know, he's a three point shooter now. Do they want him on the post? Of course, they want him to post up more. Then, then he shoots threes, but at the same time, sometimes people leave him alone. They lose him, and like whenever he's taking these threes, if you notice, he's always wide open. So you know what I mean. It, it's not going to be something that I can see him like standing out there, you know, ten times a game or, or even five times a game. I think it's something that you'll see when they're when the team is in transition and they're running, they're pushing the brakes, and then you'll just see him sag over there. And a guy will kick kick the ball out to him. You you mentioned the name Zach Randolph, and I think that's a uh, uh, an interesting name because we're we're all sitting here trying to figure out what Jaleel Okafor is going to become in this offense, uh, especially if jo- if Joel Embiid can play twenty to twenty five minutes a night. You know, and like a guy like Zach, you know, Brett Brown talked a little bit about Okafor playing in front of the basket maybe playing the four a little bit, and, and Randolph, if anybody, I guess would would seem to be the kind of body type we might hope that mb uh, or excuse me okafor could develop into um you know i know he hasn't played much yet this preseason but what what is the expectation for okafor if mb remains healthy and, and is there any hope that he can develop into a you know nba foreman i don't think he's an nba foreman I, I think that's dario sarge you know right there and and then unfortunately they're kind of sending that spot so then you say Jeremy Grant, and that's going to mess up his development at three. You know, in order to, to to me personally, you you are what you can guard, who you right. can guard. Mm-hmm. He can't guard Forbes. I mean, okay. he just can't. He's going to be out in space, and it's not going to work out for him. So, nah, it, it's not happening. And as far as Zach Randolph, I mean, the difference between those two is, you know, Okafor has great skill set. You know, you can make a case that he's he's more skilled on the offensive side than Zach Randolph. On the defensive side is where you get in trouble. Right. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, he, he's a big body. He's strong. But he's just like, he's just not a good defender in the post. And if you, if you put him out there on the four in space, he's going to get exposed. You know what I mean? So I don't see that happening. I mean, I know they talk about they're going to experiment, and, and, and they will. But, you know, if this team was actually, you know, projected to win 40 games and all that stuff, no one would be talking about Okafor being out there on the four, on, on the, I mean, at the four. So I, I don't buy that, man. I, I mean, I know it sounds good and, and they're going to probably do it, but nah, I wouldn't put them out there at all. You, you mentioned, Keith, that Embiid was already one of the three best three-point shooters on the Sixers roster. One of the guys who was supposed to be among those three and is not, is Nick Stauskas, and you had a really interesting piece uh, today, Wednesday, in the Inquirer and on Philly.com about the fact that uh, Stauskas told you he is seeing a sports psychologist. Um, <laughs> this is a guy who, you know, is kind of the forgotten lottery pick on the roster. Um, you know, they got him in that trade with the Kings a couple years ago uh, that Sam Hinkie pulled off. Why do you think he, he admitted that to you? It seems like something that... <laughs> You know, in the in the cutthroat world of pro sports, and specifically in the NBA, that even if a lot of guys do that sort of thing, it, it's 
A, going to be used against him in, you know, during a game to try to kind of get in his head, and B, it seems like the, the sort of quote-unquote weakness that fans in Philadelphia are not going to be too forgiving of. <laughs> Did you get a sense of why he talked to you about it? Well, you know what? <laughs> Excuse me. At, you know, at first I was, you know, I was amazed that, you know, he, you know, he admitted to it. You know, like, oh, yeah, that's true. He was so forthcoming. But the more you talk to him and the more you talk to other people, you realize that this is something that's common in the NBA. Like, guys go to sports psychologists just to, you know, to talk about, um, you know, if they got a bad shot, if this is working, you know, if they get in some off-the-court trouble or whatever, like, how do they bring it back and help their game? He even said that. He said, look, I'm not the only person, you know, who has problems and stuff like that. And also, I guess it's, that's his way of basically coming to grips with himself. It's kind of sort of like, you know, and, and, and I'm not comparing this to, I'm not trying to compare him to an alcoholic or a drug addict or something like that. But in certain instances, it's one of those things where until you could come out and admit that you have a problem, then you can't solve the problem. You understand what I'm saying? Sure. He knows that he lacks con- he lacks some con- confidence. And let's face it, he's a guy who they always say to say to the uh, the guys, don't read what's in the media, don't listen to the radio, you know, don't watch television. But at the same time, you know, he wants to, you know, everybody wants to get that stroke of ego. Hey, man, they love me. And then when you listen to it, and they say, dude, you're garbage. You need to go. You need to do this. You need to do that. And it, it affects them. So for him to come out and say, hey, he's admitting to it that it affects him, and it also he's also saying, but I'm trying to correct it. Now, I know it's going to be something to where fans are going to say to him, like, what's wrong with this guy? Why is he doing that? He's soft. He's this. He's that. But the more I talk to people, especially after the article came out, that he's not alone, there are always somebody told me there's probably like two or three guys on all the NBA teams who go through similar things. They just don't publicize it. I mean, it's also probably not one of those things where it's not like he he's sitting down before a game and you know right. holding the sharing ball and and you know embracing his psychologist in a tearful hug afterwards. I mean, there's a lot of like visualization exercises that you can do to kind of clear your head and and just you know they talk about flow psychologists and when you watch you know great athletes like Jordan like Roy Halladay, you can just see it that they're, uh, you know, they're just in this dimension where they, they're not thinking about anything. A lot of the times it comes down to, especially in baseball, when I covered baseball, that, you know, they, the players, the hitters would always say, you can't think too much. As soon as you start getting inside your own head, you know, that's when, I, I mean, shooting a basketball and swinging a baseball better split second things. And the more kind of conscious energy you have clogging up that flow space in your, in your whatever being, you know, the more, you know, the less you're going to let your natural skill set do its work. And I think that, you know, you may have, you may see that with Staskas, especially as we talked last podcast, you know, with him not getting the number of shots that he's used to in Michigan to kind of get into that flow. Right. Yeah. Also, but see, here's the thing. If you know, Nick Staskas, I'm going to be honest with you. Nick Staskas is probably the nicest athlete I've ever encountered. You know what I mean? And it's like, he's, you know, and we were, I was, so, you know, him and I, you know, we were talking about that yesterday. It's kind of like when you walk through the locker room, I mean, you guys have been in their locker room, you see other guys before the game, they have this game face on. It's like, 
then they look at you. They may like nod and say, what's up? But they really don't want you to come over and talk to them. You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. like, this is my space. This is this is my area. And Nick Stauskas is a nice guy. And the more you talk to Nick Stauskas, that all this stuff is new to him. Like, he grew up in Canada. He did come to America to play basketball in high school, but he wasn't the superstar on that team. He was the third best player. So he wasn't like a McDonald's guy. You know, I mean, Michigan recruited him, but they were like the top school that recruited him. So he goes to Michigan as a freshman, and then he isn't, you know, he isn't the man on that team. He's a freshman guy starting. And then all of a sudden, he blows up his sophomore year, right? Mm-hmm. So he becomes the the, um, the Big Ten player of the year. Now, from a maturity and from um, that that other type of standpoint, like a maturity and, and growth and, and gaining confidence in himself, he would have been better suited staying. But when you become the player of the year, they say you have to go because you're going to become a lottery pick. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. you got one, a guy who has one year of fame, and he's at Michigan, right? He's like a good-looking guy. All the girls love him. Everything happens. He's the man. Like He's like, he's like Tom Brady at a basketball <laughs> team, right? So, so get this. So then you are describing my college career at LaSalle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Murphy, you know how it is, right? But so, Dude, so then a, all of a like sudden you, said, you go to the pros. You, 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 you go to the pros, and, you know, you're not even a suburban kid. You're not you're even Canadian, one of the ten best-looking right? guys in the pros. Yeah, you're not even a suburban kid. You're a Canadian. And then all of a sudden it's like, you know, you, you don't really like, you know what I mean, like, you're not really, like, you don't know too much about, like, the urban setting in a locker room and all this other stuff, so you don't fit in. So then you get a little bit uncomfortable about that because, you know, you want people to like you, but you don't have stuff in common with them. So then, you know, there's a lot of things that goes on. And then, he, you know, then he's like, this is the first time in his life, because think about it, he didn't have to take the last shot until his sophomore year in at Michigan. So all of a sudden... He's not making shots. He's not doing this. People are coaching him differently, and it's just an adjustment phase. And I think that has a lot to do with it because I'm telling you, he catches flat, and, but I will tell you, he's the type of dude, you'll rip Nick Stauskas, and, the next, and he knows that you'll rip him. And the next day he's like, hey, Chief, how you doing, man? He's like, really, dude? Really? <laughs> you know what I mean? But that's just the type of guy he is. So, I, I so I can understand what he's going through. He's not used to this. It was all downhill when he when he, he walked in with and put the Brian Adams greatest hits CD on the clubhouse That's it, man. speaker. That's it. Summer '69 will do it to you every time. He was like, "What? You guys are big yeah. ladies fans." <laughs> but, but you know what? I also blame the Sixers because think about it, man. When they made that trade for him, they were making it seem like he was going to be the greatest shooter in Philadelphia '76ers history. You know, and everyone bought into it. And then next thing you know, he was hurt. And then it's like, wow, he gets in the game. People don't talk about him being rusty. They just say, this guy can't shoot. Yeah. <laughs> we were robbed. Hey, well, you know what I mean? That, that's, that's been something that I know you and I have discussed for a while, kind of the disconnect between what's actually happening on the basketball court and what realistic expectations actually are for the Sixers versus how they try to sell themselves. I mean, that's something yeah. we saw in the aftermath of them getting the number one pick and, and taking Ben Simmons and celebrating like they'd won the NBA championship. That's 
you know, the marketing campaign around MCW, you know, all that stuff, you know, that they seem to, they seem to get ahead of their skis when it comes to selling themselves quite often. Nick Stauskas just wants, some, Nick Stauskas just wants somebody to go to the Tragically Hip concert with. <laughs> uh, I know They're a Canadian, but Corey, Corey Hart. Corey Hart, there you go. Uh, anyway. Uh, never Nick surrender, Nick Staskis. Never <laughs> surrender. Should we let uh should we let Keith go? Yeah, I think Keith is uh where are you at? The White House now? Where where are you? Union Station? I'm I'm sitting in the hotel lobby in the corner because it's kinda loud in here and I don't wanna like say to somebody, Hey, can you please shut up? I'm on the phone with the two most important people in the world. You know? Well Keith And they're gonna Keith, say who? Keith Donald can... Trump <laughs> and Hillary <laughs> Keith, can you please shut up? We don't need you anymore. <laughs> oh, okay. All right, people. All right. All right. So, all right. Thanks, man. Jumping Bye. off of Bye. the Sixers uh, and back to a previous discussion topic, let's get back to the Eagles just very quickly um, because obviously the big news this week has been the suspension, the 10-game suspension of Lane Johnson going into effect. Uh, the Eagles are going to have a new right tackle as of Sunday's game against the Redskins. Uh, yeah, control V, as I like to call them. Um, That's the keyboard shortcut for paste. Yeah, just paste him in there uh, in Lane Johnson's place. Les Bowen, our colleague at the Daily News and at Philly.com, wrote what I thought was an interesting piece on Tuesday, basically saying that Johnson's suspension like throws the whole question of whether the Eagles can build a winning team and a championship-caliber team around Carson Wentz because now Johnson, the guy who was supposed to take over for Jason Peters at left tackle, uh, has a future that is very much in doubt. Um, can you count on him if he gets suspended again? His career is basically over. What did you make of that? And and what do you think of the Eagles' chances to kind of thrive and survive without him over the next ten weeks? I understand where Les is coming from, and I I agree with it to an extent. But it's 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 really not that hard to not get caught. Yeah. Except the guy has not. Gotten, has gotten caught I know, twice. but I would, I, would, I would think that whatever level of urgency the other players in the locker room use to not test positive for performance-enhancing drugs despite all the supplements they take, I would like to think that will now be Lane Johnson's default mode. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I do, but... I mean, I agree. If he, if he, it, It's a huge question mark, and I think if the reports are accurate that all of, his, all of the money on his contract extension converts to a non-guaranteed amount, it lessens the ramifications of another suspension, but you can't just, you know, if he gets suspended for two years, you can't just find a veteran right tackle still in his prime to plug in to replace him. So yeah, in that sense, you know, it's tough to build, but at the same time, I don't know what you can do about it. I mean, it doesn't really affect your strategy. Right. I, I, I'm a firm believer in best player on the board with regards to the draft. And I'm a firm believer in one of those players should be an offensive lineman every year. Yeah. You know, I think you need to develop your offensive line around. I mean, you need to develop a guy to replace Jason Peters. So, you know, if this forces them to draft tackles in the off in the draft, rather than neglecting the offensive line as they did for five years, mm-hmm. I don't think that's a bad thing. Other than that, what can you do? I mean, you're not going to cut Lane Johnson. You know, you can't move on from him. No. No, because I mean again, they are not. I mean, clearly they're not happy. I mean, you, there no, was there was snippiness sprinkled yeah. throughout that and statement from be. Howie Roseman, right? There absolutely should be. It was. It, it's just a. Stupid. It was a dumb Stupid. thing to do on his part, and uh, you know, even if you take him at his word that that this might have been some sort of weird thing with the supplement, 
you know, whether it was approved and tainted or whatever, it's still just stupid because he's the only one in the, cl- in, the in the locker room that's gotten suspended for yeah. PEDs this year. It's yeah. not again. It's not that hard. Not you see hard. these guys running around with their shaker cups every day, putting powder into cups, and none of them test positive. Lane Johnson, again, he shouldn't have needed this wake up call, but at the same time, I would like to think. I don't think anyone's ever been suspended for two years, have they? Maybe Sean Merriman did Maybe once. Maybe once, yeah. But so, all right, so let's get to the here and now then. Which now this, is, but I'll say this, it yeah. drastically impacts the team this year. Right, okay. I so mean, the, the, underreported, the underreported story about Carson Wentz's uh, ascension has been how good, has the, been how good the offensive line has been. Yeah. And how, you know, Jason Peters, I was a huge Jason Peters skeptic going into this season, and I think we're seeing just how awful that Chip Kelly system was for the offensive lineman. As Alan Barber said at one point to a reporter, it feels like everything's moving in slow motion after <coughs> the last couple. I was what? that reporter. Oh, was that Thank you? Thank you very yeah. much. I mean, that was a great quote, and it, and it really spoke volumes. And Jason Peters has been their best player this year. Lane Johnson's played great, but Jason Peters has, has played very well as well. They're still running behind him. They're, they're yeah. you know, that Carson Wentz has not had to deal with pressure against the Lions was the first time he really dealt with any. And I think if you're looking for questions that he still must answer as we kind of adjust our forecast for him career-wise, it's what can he do when he's getting pummeled the way Sam Bradford did last year? Because yeah. that's that's a whole different ball game, And you saw it on occasion uh, against the Lions where, you know, it, you got to think you got to think really fast when you got guys coming at you. And yeah. I think we still need to see that out of Carson Wentz. And Lane Johnson, I mean, that's a, that, that could be a season changer, you know? Yeah, it could be. I mean, and couple that with the schedule, you know, getting much, much more challenging. I mean, look at who they, you know, goodbye Browns and Bears. You've now got the Redskins who have, whatever you think of Kirk Cousins and that team, they've won three games in a row and are starting to feel pretty good about themselves. You've got the, the unbeaten Vikings after that. You've got the Cowboys after that. You've got Seattle on the horizon. You've got Atlanta, who all of a sudden is the NFC's best team and who would be a difficult, I would whoa, argue. Whoa, whoa. Minnesota's the NFC. All right, excuse me. Yeah, Atlanta's but the second, second best, best team. Um, and who I would argue would have been a difficult matchup anyway. Yeah. Um, they you were know, last year. You know, you still got Cincinnati. You've still got two games against the Giants, who, whatever you th- again, whatever you think of them, are going to be challenging games. It, it, it's hard. Put it's it this way I wrote this, and I wrote this today. I didn't write it to this extreme, but I was thinking it. Because I didn't want to, I, I didn't want to read the comments, so I, <laughs> I didn't put this in there. But honestly, it, would it would it shock you if the Eagles split with the division and lost every other game? I don't think anything about the NFL at this point really but, shocked. But Short of the Patriots ending up with right, a losing but, but record. What I'm saying is, if you were to look at the schedule, no, it's that, conceivable. No, on, right, like it's ba- not, right. it's not. Yeah, nothing would shock me. Yeah, but although having said that, I would be shocked. I would be shocked from this standpoint, which is that they've played well enough and they've played, with the exception of, you know, much of what we saw against the Lions, they've been um, efficient and solid enough to think, I, I would be surprised if they got blown out. You know what I mean? And and I can't imagine that they're going to lose every game outside the division in a close game. I just, I don't see that, you know. They seem to be the kind of team... That will stay in every game, either through its defense or through. Yeah, we. I think so, but I. I don't know that we've seen them against a good. Put it this way: five of their next eight games are against either a top ten quarterback or a top ten defense. Well, we saw them against a top ten quarterback, right? And, but, and they blew that but, team out. But that was their. The, so then, here's my follow up: 
we saw the Cardinals against the Bills and get blown out. We saw the Eagles beat the Patriots last year when when yeah. it turns out Chip Kelly had already been fired. Yeah. Weird things happen, and yeah. you get one of those. And there's still a chance that Steelers game was one of those. Yeah, uh, it's possible. It's you possible. Know, I guess I, I just look at the schedule, and I see Minnesota, I see Atlanta, I see Green Bay, I see Seattle, and I see Cincinnati. On a neutral field, the Bengals are the only ones they might be favored against, I think. Atlanta's probably a pick em. Minnesota, Green Bay, Seattle, I think they're, they're underdogs too. It wouldn't shock me at all for them to lose all of those games. I don't think that they're going to be favored in any one of those games except how, for Atlanta. How in your right mind can you doubt Carson Wentz? I'm just this saying. Is, I, this is inexcusable. This is egregious. <laughs> this is specious, egregious, egregious, ridiculous. I, what's I, happening right now? I am. Just, what's that from? Um, it's a combination of Stephen A. Smith and Jackie Childs. Yeah, I was going to say Jackie Childs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, all I'm saying is when you look at the schedule, there's a there's a chance that they just played three of the. F- yes, they've already played the Based three worst teams. Based on the way the schedule play. looks now, I I think you're right. You there's no I don't think there's any clear cut victory on that schedule right now. No, I think they beat Baltimore. I don't think Baltimore's good, so I think they beat Baltimore. Okay, and then I think that they. Uh, but you know, I also don't think like Dallas is is that's a toss up. Yeah, you know, it's absolutely is. It's going to be interesting. I think it's none of this is downgrading on the Eagles and saying that they're they're left for dead or or worried. No, Luke, no, but just, I think that we it's it's I think it's a fascinating season because of that. I think we have a lot more learning to do about this team, especially with not only Lane Johnson being suspended, but let's keep in mind that they have an offensive coordinator who had never called a a a full game in the NFL before, a defensive coordinator who last called a game with the Bills in 2014 and a quarterback who nobody had tape on either and now every every game they have more tape to figure out who's doing what and you know i always go back to what bill belichick said where he says you don't know you don't know your team until october and you know if you look back over i mean the falcons started five and oh last year uh you know the eagles started three and one in 2012 um they started three and oh in 2014 under chip kelly so it's just you know you know what i look at the schedule and see I see the worst day of the year if you cover the NFL this Sunday, which is the trip down to and back from Landover, Maryland Ugh. for a Redskins game. I see a seven fifty a six fifty seven AM train out of Trenton down to New Carrollton. I see Dan Snyder's Pleasure Palace, um, which is just an awful, awful place. And I see a Does a, that have, is that one of those that doesn't have windows? It has windows, but oh, okay. but you're you're Ask Merrill Reese about this sometimes. You're you're in the back of one of the end zones. Okay. So no, I've been there. Yeah, you can't see the entire game. And Merrill, if you ever want to get Merrill Reese and going, and the food is is <laughs> amazingly bad. Yeah, it's it's just it's like it's iceberg. Bad all le- it's like ice, you pay ten dollars for cold it. hot dogs and iceberg lettuce and white lettuce. iceberg lettuce. Yeah. Well, white until it turns brown. <laughs> but anyway, but enough about us. Yeah, we will um we'll deal with all that next week. The last we time I was down there, I ate like a. Uh, I, did you get a I burger? Was or something? So turned off by the the chafing dish that what I saw <laughs> when I opened up the chafing dish, I I got like a uh, Carl's Jr. double, which was how was that? How was that experience? Uh, I missed the I missed the second quarter. <laughs> and on that note, we will talk to you all next week. Yes, yeah. I went poopies. <laughs> <laughs>